I just want to, I just want to take, take a moment out of, um, our morning and just pray for Kim. Um, Linda was telling me that, um, you know, he, um, that he has not been responding to her as well as, as she would like. And they've got an opportunity coming up this week to go to med rehab. And she is concerned that if he's kind of in the state that he's in right now, that he's not going to respond very well to, um, med rehab. So, um, she's kind of disappointed about that, but you know, I just, I want, I want to say a prayer for the Butram family, um, in, in general and, and, um, and, and I just, they would ask that, um, you'd keep Kim in your prayers and let me just say, especially Linda in your prayers. Father, thank you for, um, all the good that you've, you've placed in this world and, um, thank you for, so much good that has been in this community here in Beckley and, and really around the world, um, especially the United States through the Buttrams' lives. Um, I know I'm a fabulous beneficiary of, of years of wisdom and, and um, I want to just honor them and their lives together. And um, I just want to lift up Linda in our prayers Right now, as a body, uh, we want to pray to you and just um, give her the, the grace and the strength that she needs to, to, to face um, a situation with her husband who um, is not responding to her um, as she'd like and, and um, seems to be down. And I just pray, Father, for them and for um, their family and all the the, the people that help them on a regular basis, you know, uh, pray for the girls and, and um, uh, for Jacqueline. Just thank you for the wonderful uh, group of people that you've surrounded them with. And I just pray for their encouragement uh, today. God, you're good. Thank you. Amen. Let me switch subjects real quick. Um, I want to talk about cell groups. We're gonna we're gonna switch things up a little bit um, for Wednesday nights. You notice that we've we've put two groups together uh, for a period of time. We're gonna do something even crazier. Yeah, it's true. We're gonna put three groups together. And we are going to do some, for a limited time only, you can uh, find this at your local small group, which will be here in this building on Wednesday nights at 7. We're going we're gonna to put all the groups together. Not this coming week, as Jason pointed out. We will have one more group that's separate. But we're gonna, the following week, we're going to put every group together, men, women, boys, and girls, Young and old, rich and poor. We're all going to be here and we're going to thematically study some scriptures and thematically go through a book on marriage. Now, um, this book is called Love and Respect and it's um, by William Edridge. Um, how many people have read this book? I'm just interested in knowing that. Oh, 5,000. Good. Um, 
there's a lot of people who read that book. Now, let me tell you, I would love for you to get into that book, start reading it. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about what we're going to do on Wednesday night, two weeks from now. Um, but let me just, let me just encourage you with a little bit of thought about that. Um, I would like to, I would like you to purchase the book and I'll probably make some arrangements to try to, try to have some extra around here. But let me just tell you this. How many people use Kindle? I just want to see. I just want to know this stuff. I'm just doing a survey today. Um, how many people use Audible books? Okay. Fabulous. Fabulous. Four bucks on Kindle. Four bucks. The book is this thick. I don't know. It's really big. Um, hardback. So I would encourage you to get that, start reading it. The basic underpinnings of this book are two real serious concepts. And they're, and they're drawn out of Colossians and Ephesians, the works of Paul the Apostle. And basically, it is husbands love your wives. And wives respect your husband. What I want to tell you about real personally right now about my marriage. I know Gina didn't know I was going to share this, but I wanted to share some real personal details um, about our marriage. Um, there are times when I don't love her. It's true. And there are times when she doesn't respect me. <laughs> She's hurt. Um, no, it's true. And, and what I want to tell you is this is true in your marriage too. Now, you may be sitting out there and saying, um, I'm not married. So, is that, okay, thank you, the girls in the back. And we are thankful that you are not married. But after this, after this Bible study, you will be married. We've flown in some, no, never mind. This is gonna get bad quick. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I think is, is true about this book and the scripture that underpins this book is this is about relationships. And you don't have to be married at all to benefit from this book. And especially if you're aspiring to become married, this book will provide you insight and not just this book. I don't really feel like I'm selling books here. Uh, my book, um, the Bible, provides you insight on relationships. And the underpinning of this book is husbands love your wives. Wives respect your husbands. And that goes for every relationship that you have. So I encourage you to bring your kids. We're going to talk about it in a way that's not... Um, wouldn't be embarrassing to kids. Um, obviously there's a lot of different ways you can do things on marriage. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about it in those ways. We may do some breakout groups where we, where we are able to talk a little bit more, um, intimately about marriage and relationships. But, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that. I, I won't, I won't, I won't spoil the fun. But what I wanna do say is come one, come all. Um, we're gonna do this on Wednesday nights in place of cell groups. So we're going to get you out of the crazy cycle is the way the authors describe 
when you don't love your wife and she responds by not respecting you, which helps you to respond by not loving your wife, which she responds by not respecting you, you can see how like a cycle happens. Um, but one of the things that's true in Scripture is, and, and, we'll, and we'll be challenged, you'll be challenged by Scripture and by this book, is that both of these commands are unconditional. They're not conditional commands. It's a command for a woman in a marriage relationship to respect her husband. And it's a command in a marriage relationship for a husband to love his wife. They're not conditional. It's not if she respects me, I will love her. Or if he loves me, I will respect him. And that's what's really different about, gosh, this is terrible. I keep on raising my iPad, but there are Bibles in here. That's what I was thinking. That's what's really different about the Christian scriptures right here in the iPad um, is love is unconditional. And we got that love right here, the love feast. So we're going to talk more about that. Um, and I'll, I'll be talking to you about it next week, but we're going to start that two weeks from now here at the Midkiff Center. So come one, come all. morning. How is everyone? Glad to see everyone out this morning. I'm so glad that we're starting a marriage study. For everyone else but me and my marriage, we've got it together. It's perfect. She's looking at me like, don't even go there. Many years ago, several years ago, a British actor was asked this question. Do actors have any type of trait that sets them apart from the rest of humanity? And he immediately responded, absolutely. Without a doubt, yes, there is. You can pick out an actor by the glazed look that comes over their eyes when the conversation begins to drift away from them. It kind of reminds us of the story of Narcissus found in Greek mythology. The story is told about Narcissus, who is a young man that is so handsome that it took but a glance from a woman to immediately be drawn and immediately be attracted to him. The problem was that he was so consumed with himself that he didn't think that there was a woman that was worthy of him, including Zeus's daughter, Echo. So Nemesis, who controlled giving and taking away happiness for the sake of keeping balance in the world, because of his haughtiness, thought that Narcissus need to be punished. So one day he's walking through the woods, he comes to a pool of water, He kneels down, and Nemesis causes him to fall in love with his own reflection as he goes to get a drink of water. He's so taken aback by the splendor of the image. He's so consumed with the image of himself. He's so consumed with self-love that he will not leave that sight 
even to get food. And it's right there that he will die. I guess the moral of that story is that it was a love for himself that ultimately led to the death of himself. So when we identify someone as a narcissist or narcissistic, what we're really saying is, this is a person who is so absorbed with self-love And usually there's this one dominant question that's lingering in the front of a mind of someone like that, and it's this. What's in it for me? What do I get out of this? And you know what? That type of mindset knows no boundaries. I work in the healthcare industry, and I want to assure you that mindset makes its way and to the little old ladies on the verge of dementia in, the, in their wheelchairs as well. We will, before mealtime, we'll take out a drink station so that the residents can come and, and help themselves to, to a drink before their meal. And there's this one lady who guards that drink station like a watchman. She kind of, she kind of moves around in her wheelchair. And if somebody comes up, to take a drink, she will smack their hand, and we have to literally get a, a CNA to come and tend to her because she has the mindset, this is mine. This is all about me. When one of the reasons, and I want to be emphatic about one, one of the reasons that Jesus said you must be born again was to confront that idea so that we would be delivered from the idea of self-emphasis. Now, don't get me wrong. We are all defined at times by those narcissistic moments. But the beauty of the Gospel, the beauty of being born again, is found in the fact that I acknowledge that there is one greater than I. And the greater beauty of the Gospel is found in the fact that there is a dispositional change because of my original and ongoing encounter with the One who is greater than I. There is a change in the emphasis of my life. There is a change in the direction of my life. There is a change in my ideals. There is a change in the perspectives of my life in relation to what are the things in my life that need to increase? What are the things in my life that need to decrease for the glory of God, the exaltation of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? Listen, there is a reason that Christ referred to John the Baptist the way He did in Matthew eleven, eleven, when he said, Among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So this morning we're going to make an attempt to uncover just a small portion of what it is that Christ has determined that contributes to the greatness of a man or woman of God. As we open our Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 22 through 30 this morning.
John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside. And He remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They can't even respond to him as Christ or Jesus or the Lamb. That one that you talked about. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning, God, and we would, Father, begin by asking for much clarity this morning, God. So I pray this morning, Father, that You would show Yourself strong. And I pray, Father God, that You would introduce us to joy, Your joy. And so, Father, we're reminded, I'm reminded of of Your joy in Luke chapter 10 when You rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit after You heard the report of Your disciples and after You interacted with them. Jesus, how You leapt and how You danced and how You swirled around because the Father was bringing men to salvation. Because the Father was doing a great work in the hearts of the people that You called. So Lord, would You make that joy our joy? God, would You do away with our misconceptions of what joy is and where joy is to be found? So, Lord, do we begin this morning with repentance, God? Asking that You would forgive us for seeking joy in unwarranted places, God. God, forgive me for seeking joy in my secular vocation. Seeking joy in based upon the, the amount of people that would show up in this type of context. God, for seeking to look for joy and think that joy could be found in another place outside of where your joy truly lies. 
So we would ask that, God, You would orient us this morning and that You would do that ultimately for Your glory. And we would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two principles that I want to pull from this passage of Scripture. First is being a disciple's joy. I want to talk to you this morning about a disciple's joy, but specifically where that joy is found. Because I want to suggest this morning that a disciple's joy is found in the joy of the gospel while the gospel is in action. It's a joy in the gospel in action. It is a joy in the gospel being active. And what that looks like to us and what our role is that. A joy in the gospel as God draws men and a joy in the gospel as God loves men. And what's our role in that? Secondly, I want to talk to you briefly about a disciple's journey. So what does it mean to be a friend of Christ and what does that look like for us? So first, let's talk about a disciple's joy. Let's reread verses 27 through 29 as they're so relevant to that idea. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bridegroom, or the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. You may notice that I placed a little bit of an emphasis on given him in verse 27 and has in verse 29. I believe that we're going to see in those two ideas, John is going to greater or greatly define specifically what his joy is. And we're going to come back to that. But the first thing that I want to do is establish the context of verses 22 through 26 which lead John the Baptist to respond the way that he does in verses 27 through 29. The context is this. John is baptizing and Jesus is baptizing. Although we're told in John 4.2 that Jesus Himself is not baptizing, but only His disciples. And at some point in this baptizing process, John's disciples engage in a discussion with an unknown Jew over the Jewish idea of purification. Now, what's the tone of their discussion? It's important that we identify the tone of their discussion so that we know to look for tones of our disunity, perhaps. So, let's try to define the tone of that discussion. The Greek word for discussion that we see in verse 25 is the same Greek word that Paul uses for controversy in 1 Timothy 6.4 when he's defining the goals of false teachers. So in 1 Timothy 6.4, that passage reads this way. He, speaking of the false teacher, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for, there's the same Greek word, controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. So the word discussion, it indicates a dangerous, a useless, and a very angry debate. 
it highlights the emphasis of the exchange rather than the truth that needs to be discovered in the midst of the exchange. It highlights the heat of the moment rather than the truth that needs to be discovered at the moment. So immediately, this context suggests for us that John's disciples nor this unknown Jew are voices that can in any way be trusted. And we see that specifically in relation to John's disciples. Why? They're just simply having a narcissistic moment. This moment is about me. Now, perhaps... Perhaps this unknown Jew is questioning the validity of John's baptism as maybe he is measuring John's baptism against the many Pharisaic laws in relation to purification. But one of the things that is immediately and initially obvious is that this Jew is establishing the fact that Jesus' ministry movement is greater than the ministry movement of John the Baptist. And immediately we are confronted with a real principle for us. Immediately we are confronted with the reality that dissension and dissatisfaction and grumbling and disunity, those things are the result of misguided joy. See, the reality is joy is like so many other expressions and experiences and feelings in the sense that it is so subjective. One man's joy may indeed be another man's grief. So even as the people of God, even as believers in Christ, we need a plumb line for joy. Don't get me wrong. I know that there is a joy that comes with the birth of a child. I know that there is a joy that comes from that door opening to that long-awaited job opportunity. I know that there is a joy that comes from the fruition of a lifelong project coming into place. I know that there is a joy that takes place as we see the fulfillment of a long-term goal. But I want to suggest that John has a very specific joy in mind that surpasses even our greatest temporal moments. When he says... Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It has reached its height. It has reached its pinnacle. This is the completeness. This is the fullness of my joy. Okay, John, what is the source of your joy? That we can conform. That we can change. That we can repent. That we can establish conviction. What is the source, John, of this joy that so defines you when those around you are grumbling and complaining and crying. That's the source of your joy. And I want to suggest that John, along with all of those who fall under the banner of the Christian category, let me retract that. John, as well as all of those who fall under the banner of knowing what it means to have been dead and brought to life, those people that fall under that category, they, we, find our full joy at the same spring of joy that God Himself drinks from. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. So where does your joy come from? 
Your joy comes from Christ's joy. The fullness of your joy comes from Christ's joy. We're tempted to talk about John's joy. John said, now my joy is complete. We're so tempted to say, okay, John, let's talk about your joy. But understand this. John's joy is rooted in the reality of Christ's joy. That's where we're going to find our joy from. So what does it look like? I want to make two suggestions. I want to suggest that the joy of the gospel is found in the action of men being drawn to Christ. The joy of the gospel in action is found in men being drawn to Christ. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing, one thing, unless it is given him from heaven. I'll ask you a couple questions. <clears throat> How do you feel personally about men being or not being drawn to the Father? What's it stirring you? Indifference? Or is that a matter of importance? And maybe that's a little vague, so let me be a little more specific with my question. How do you feel about being or not being engaged as a catalyst in the process of the salvation of another human being? Or at least in the sanctifying work of another human being? How would you feel if you knew for the rest of your life that you would have to be detached from God's work of drawing people to Himself and God's work of working in the hearts of people, how would that make you feel? See, I believe that what John is doing, he is introducing us to a passion. He's introducing us to the principle of the need to be a voice. It's a lesser voice, but it's a voice nonetheless. Paul said it this way in Romans 1, 14-16. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Apostle Paul looked at the eyes of the unbelieving world. He looked the unbelieving world straight into the eyes, and when he did so, it moved him to realize that he was in debt to that unbelieving world. Why? Because that, beloved, is what undeserved grace does. That's what happens when we realize that we were once dead and we were brought to life. That's the passion of John. That's the passion of Christ. Yes, I believe that the Apostle Paul realized that preaching the Gospel was indeed his duty. The proclaiming of the Word of God was his role and his responsibility. But realizing that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation changed that duty into a delight. Paul's joy is in the Gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God to draw men unto Himself. Paul's participation in that gospel is to simply proclaim it. I think that's in a sense what John the Baptist is saying in verse 27 when he says, a person cannot receive even one thing 
unless it is given him from heaven. The word or the verb given, it means the bestowal of a gift. So could John the Baptist be suggesting that every good thing that we have is a gift from God? Maybe. Maybe he could be hinting at that and suggesting that. As a matter of fact, James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. But I want to suggest that this statement is so much more than a very generalized vocalization from John the Baptist. I want to suggest that it is a response to Christian dissatisfaction. Are you dissatisfied in your Christian life? At times, I can guarantee you are. This is a response to dissension. This is a response to Christian discontentment. This, beloved, is a response to Christian unfulfillment and Christian disunity. Because God is saying, listen, listen. A person can receive, cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Where's the passion here? Okay? Is God just giving a general gift? Listen, the thing that God is giving His Son is a gift, but it's a gift in the form of people. That's the passion that we see in this passage. God is establishing the emphasis of our Christian passion, and it's not seen in the numerical numbers of a church. It's seen in a passion for people. Every good gift comes from God, and this particular gift from God to His Son is in the form of people. And listen, the gift of people, the gift of salvation, the gift of the Gospel, and I want to suggest that that is the joy of Christ. That is the joy of Christ. The gift of people. God's gift to the Son is people. God's gift to the church is still people. But we have to be a people that proclaim Christ. And I believe that John the Baptist is saying, hey, look at what it is that God is doing. That's my joy. We may be tempted to say, but God's not doing that here. We may be tempted to say, look around us. We don't see God moving that way among us, which is kind of what John's disciples were saying. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is not to look around us and determine the the quantity of what God is doing. Our responsibility is to vocalize the gospel and leave the sovereign work of who it is he's drawing completely up to him. We have to understand that a disciple's joy in the gospel must be rooted and stem from Christ's joy in the gospel. And Christ's joy in the gospel revolves around people. The salvation of people. I think that might mean we need to get a little friendly to a healthy degree with sinners. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72, some versions say 70. Sends them out to preach the gospel. Now I want you to pay attention to the manner in which they return in Luke 10, 17. It says this. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus immediately bridles that joy and says, wait a minute, stop. That's the wrong joy. Mm-mm. We're joyful because look at this great thing that the Spirit of God is doing as the wind of God blows through our midst. Uh, people are just, you know, God's doing this great thing. Demons are, are being released and people are being freed up. And 
Jesus says, no, that's not the joy that you need to be thankful for. Verse 20 of Luke 10. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus' full joy is not seen in the fact that demonic spirits are subject to Him. Jesus' full joy is caused by the sight of God's grace and the salvation of His people. God's gift to the church is people. And that's what we unify around. But it's the joy of the gospel in action is just, it's not about just men being drawn. It's about men being loved. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Once again, I think that it is only fair that we establish the reality that any joy that we have that's rooted in the gospel It has to stem for the joy that Christ has in the gospel. Jesus' joy in the gospel is found in the fact that God sets His love on people. Now those people happen to be sinners. Yes, God sets His love on sinners for His glory. But God also sets His love on sinners for His gladness or for His joy. In Luke 15, we're immediately confronted with two parables. We're confronted with the parable of the lost sheep, and then right behind that follows the parable of the lost corn, lost coin. The parable of the lost sheep ends like this. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The parable of the lost coin ends like this. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now let's be extremely clear here. The joy that radiates in heaven and the joy that radiates before the angels is the joy of the Father that comes from the Father because He is setting His love on sinning people. We see the Son's commitment. We see the Son's joy in the way that the Father loves people. How? because of His ongoing commitment to associate Himself with sinners. How do we know that that's the joy of Christ? How do we know the joy of Christ is to see God's love set on sinners? Because He's committed to continue to associate with them. That's how we know. And I guess the question before us may be, what's our commitment? John says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The word has. It's derivative of a Greek word echo, which means to have and to hold, implying continual, ongoing possession. This is Christ's commitment. His joy in the gospel is to have lost people. To have and to hold. That sounds like marriage vows. And the reason that it sounds like marriage vows with an internal emphasis is because that is exactly what they are. He is setting His love on sinners. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that this demands some serious soul-searching take place in my heart at this stage. Am I going to be the kind of man that continues to talk about the greatness of a Savior? The greatness of the love of a Savior, not concerned with whether that love is visible or not. Or am I going to show the greatness of Christ through, in part, a decrease of my self-love in order that the increase of God's love would be the shining light. And I think that 
Christian author Larry Crabb asks a very relevant question directed at us at this point when he asks this. Which is worse? A Sunday school class that once drew hundreds but has now dwindled to 30? Or a Sunday school teacher whose sense of failure is never explored by a caring friend? Which is worse? A family torn apart by the father's drinking, his wife's frustration, and their third grader's learning disabilities, or a self-hating dad, a terrified mom, and a lonely little boy. Three human beings whose beauty and value no one ever discovers. Which is worse, a national campaign that fails to gain steam for the pro-life movement, or a single woman on her way home from an abortion clinic in the back seat of a taxi. A woman whose soul no one ever touches. Which is worse. Yeah, we may wonder how the teacher of the now small class feels. We may worry over each member of the torn up family. And we may even feel the guilt and pain of a woman who has ended her baby's life. But our temptation is to do what is easier. We design programs. We brainstorm ways to build attendance. And in our outrage over divorce statistics and abortion numbers, we fight for family values. Yeah, these are all good things. But do we ask the teacher, how are you feeling? Do we invite the drinking dad to play golf? Do we invite the bitter woman to lunch? Do we invite the little boy to play with our children? Do we let the aborting woman know we care about her soul? Now this is crucial because one of the things that we scream as a church is unity, unity, unity. What is it that we're gathering around in unity? The Gospel? Are we gathering around the Gospel theologically, doctrinally? How are we gathering around the Gospel that would unify us? He goes on to say and ends it by saying this, that response to hurting people, I would label disunity. Disunity is not just fighting over personal preferences. It's not just leaving the church because someone hurt your feelings. It's not just gossip that tears down other members of the body. Disunity is leaving needs unmet. It's failing to love people the way God would have us love people. A disciple's joy is found in the fact that he loves people the way God loves people. We can talk about gathering around the Gospel, but we have to gather around it Practically, functionally, we have to gather around it so that it creates movement. Listen, I am so committed to seeing the Gospel in action in the lives of my family members. I'm committed to seeing the Gospel in action in your lives. Committed to that. I pray for that. I purpose for that along with the rest of the elders and many other people in this church. But... 
the joy that Christ had in the gospel went way beyond those boundaries. The boundaries of a home, the boundaries of a church. Jesus was a friend to sinners. He ate with sinners. He interacted with sinners. He engaged with sinners. That was the joy of the gospel. Is that our joy as well? Lastly, we're confronted with the disciples' journey. Look in verse 29, please. Starting there. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The friend accompanies the bridegroom everywhere. The friend eats when and where the bridegroom eats. The friend sleeps when and where the bridegroom sleeps. The friend remains faithful to the bridegroom up to the point that the bridegroom enters into the marriage chamber and he stands there and he waits. He waits to hear the voice of the bridegroom that validates and seals the reality that this marriage union is consummated. He waits for that voice, and until he hears that voice, his task is not over. He will stand, he will remain, he will be faithful until he hears the voice of the bridegroom. That's his role. That's John's role. And until the voice of the bridegroom is made abundantly clear, in every life that John encounters, listen, his task is not over. The friend must hear the voice of the bridegroom in order for his task to be complete. This is John's joy. It comes from the voice of another being heard, and that voice surpasses his voice. See, our role is to be the lesser voice, although we are a voice indeed, but the purpose of the lesser voice is to make sure that everybody that we come in contact with has the ability to hear the greater voice. The voice of the bridegroom himself. Above all other voices, even our own, our goal is to lead people to the greatness of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the purpose of decrease in our lives. That He would become greater, we would become smaller. Anthropologist George Foster, he did a study assessing the social perceptions of gain and loss in certain cultures, including this one that John the Baptist and his disciples are residing in. And the conclusion looks something like this, and I think that maybe we can identify. To these men, gain and loss meant that the good things of the world exist in limited supply where there is no way to increase the availability of the good things. In other words, the desired things of life, such as land, wealth, friendship, and even such things as love, manliness, honor, respect, status, power, influence, All of these things exist in finite quantity and are always in short supply. So any increase achieved by one was viewed as a decrease and a loss for another 
with no way to replenish the loss. That's what the disciples are experiencing right now at this moment. Wait a minute. We're giving up something that we cannot get back. We're getting ready to lose the success of our ministry. We're getting ready to lose the value of what we've done. Everything that we've done, we're getting ready to lose it all. We'll never see it again. And John says, wait, that's not where we find joy. That's not where we find joy. We find joy in what God is doing through Christ. We find joy in watching God do what He said He would do or watch watch God do what Christ said He would do when Christ said, He will draw men unto Me. That's our joy. And again, well, He's not doing it here. It doesn't matter. Where is our joy? He will do it here as He sovereignly designs to do it here. Now, we can look at this culture and we might be able to identify, but I believe that our our personal cultural experience might be a little bit more narcissistic than that. One secular writer states, feeling good about ourselves may in fact be the cornerstone of our total well-being. Now, that's not just a secular perspective. That same perspective is making its way into the church. And if what Jerry Bridges says is correct and the church is continually ten years behind the culture, then this is seeping, has has made its way, and continuing to make its way into the church. As a matter of fact, one Christian writer in an article titled Self-Esteem, the New Reformation, states this. Self-esteem or pride in being human is the single greatest need facing the human race today. A person shouldn't think of themselves as an unworthy sinner. If he does, it is doubtful if he can honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Christ. How tragic! How tragic is that? Let me tell you something that Scripture assumes. Scripture assumes that we are a people who love ourselves. Scripture assumes that Matthew 22:39 Love your neighbor how as yourself. Not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. Secondly, love your neighbor. Thirdly, love yourself. It's already assumed that we love ourselves. Ephesians 5:28-29 Husbands ought to love their wives as what? Their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves who? Himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it. So, 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 there can be no confusion that the Scripture is calling us to love ourselves. We already love ourselves. That's the given of Scripture. We love ourselves. The mandate isn't find a way to love yourself. The mandate is take this love that you have for yourself and redirect it toward other people. And that's the joy of the Christian life. John said it this way, he must Increase. I must decrease. It is an imperative that is not optional. It is the must of, the same must, you must be born again. You must decrease so that He will increase. It is the sovereign plan of God that we would be a people who would decrease in order that He would increase. It is not an option for us. John Piper says, 
when John the Baptist says in verse 29 through 30, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. When Jesus becomes greater in the world, and I become lesser in the world, my joy increases. And when that is the purpose and plan of Jesus Himself, it is not egomania. Is love. See, the reality is, we can talk about this great love and this great joy that He has in the Gospel, that Christ has in the Gospel. We can talk about it, and I can tell you about it, but until we experience it for ourselves, it doesn't mean as much. I can tell you about the beauty of the Grand Canyon of Colorado, but until you see its splendor for yourself, you're, there's, there's quite a bit missing from my description. I can tell you about the beauty of the coral reefs of Australia, but until you see it for yourself, there is something lacking. I can tell a single man about the glory of married life, but until he experiences it for himself, he will not grasp the beauty of it. This is something that we cannot explain. The joy of the Gospel is that we interact with people that were a voice, a lesser voice, so that the greater voice would be heard and He would lead them to Himself. That's the joy that we have in the Gospel. And I think that maybe, just maybe, there is a fear that we may have that we could be confronted with a great and grand truth that this thing called Christianity is not a shared life. Let me expand on that. What does that mean? It means that I don't have a vision for my life along with Christ's vision for my life. It means that, it means that Christ has a vision for my life that I must conform to. And maybe, just maybe, I am fearful of hearing His voice because of what hearing His voice may require of me and what it may mean for me. Because I think that if I hear His voice clearly, that will demand that I repattern my life so that His passions are my passions. The things that He loved becomes the things that I love. And because of that, and for that sake, and for the fact that Christ loves sinners, I must decrease so that He may increase. Why? Because God loves people. He loves sinners. Bob Deffenbaugh says, and I'm going to give you a few quotes in closing, the must of John 3.30 is crucial. John is showing deep humility, it's true. But he is also saying that this is the way it must be. The way it will be. Because this is the plan and the purpose of the sovereign God. Matthew Poole says, He must increase in honor and dignity and reputation in the world. He is the rising sun and He must shine every day more and more and more and more, therefore, I must decrease in order that He would increase. Thomas Constable, far from discouraging people from following Jesus, as His disciples implied He should, John would continue to promote Him. Why? Because he viewed this as God's will and therefore said it must be so. Would that all of us who are God's servant would view Jesus' position and our own similarity. Submission to God's will 
and the exaltation of Jesus, not prominence in His service, should bring joy to His servants. John Butler says, Any person who would serve the Lord properly must embrace this attitude if their light is to shine at the right places and the right time. <laughs> Lastly, A.W. Tozer states, John condensed into that one final sentence the secret of his own spiritual greatness, which is what we began asking. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Ask if you would to bow your heads with me, please. Fathers, we come to You this morning, Lord. Uh, we are confronted with the great need, God, that we have. We are confronted with the need to decrease in will. That God, all the fame and all the glory and all the fireworks and all of the attention would be cast upon You, Lord. And so, Father, we would, we would hope to be able to identify with Your joy by noting that You have joy in drawing men unto Yourself. Therefore, we need to be a voice. You find great joy in God loving men. Therefore, we need to associate with sinners so that we would be as committed to that joy, Christ, as You were. And so, Father, we pray that as we consider who we are and what it means to be the church, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower, what it means to be a man of, after your own heart, what it means to be engaged in true religion, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be born again, what it means to be humble, what it means to, to be like you. We, we pray that you would reorient our perspective of joy and be reminded of your response to the Father after you had that dialogue with the disciples in Luke 10. And you vocalized that your joy was found in the fact that God revealed Himself to certain men and that He hid Himself from others. Because God, it was Your sovereign design, pleasure and will to do so. I would ask that, Lord, You would give us a passion and a love for sinners. I'm so appreciative of, of, of the things that we see, the focus on marriages and, and things like the pro-life movement and all of these things that, that are birthed, I know, from, from genuine care and concern. But God, give us, give us the passion that Your Son had and the joy that Your Son had in, in engaging with people, with individuals. That we would not be a people that would sit back from afar, but sit down and be a friend to sinners.
Lord, would You do that in us? God, help us to not be ashamed of the Gospel in that way, but realize that that Your Gospel, your, Your truth of the Gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to all who would believe. So, Father, You set us up to be successful. You will save. You will call. You will bring people to Yourself. You will do that. Because You love to bestow good gifts to Your Son. You love to bestow good gifts to Your church. You love to bestow good gifts to Your saints. And You still will bestow the gift of people to Your people. Help us to be engaged in that. In Jesus' name, Amen.